Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. In a bit of follow-up from our last episode, we were joking around and talking a little bit about that um, entirely acrylic watch that was on Kickstarter. And I joked about the fact that it would make a perfect dive watch just because it was a, a single solid piece of acrylic and you could should be able to bring that down to just about any depth and uh, it's not going to not going to impact the movement itself or the the function of it but of course it's a horrible dive design uh, just because you can't see anything on it and it doesn't have any of the functions that you need uh, but if you do want to hear about dive watches and listen to uh, a couple of guys who actually know something about dive watches unlike uh, the two of us uh, I do recommend the last episode of Time for a Pint uh, Matt and Chris both talk about uh, some of the dive watches that the two of them own. Uh, both of them are divers. Um, Chris is a relatively new diver. Matt's an experienced diver. And they talk a little bit about the ins and outs of what you want to look for in a dive watch, as well as uh, some of the uh, the watches they've owned and, and they've actually used as a uh, dive watch. Uh, they're not just uh, buying dive watches and wearing them into the office. So uh, they they do understand the ins and outs of them. So if you want to hear more about dive watches, I do recommend that you go and check out that episode of Time for a Pint. As ironic as it is, it's actually quite rare that you hear people actually talking about dive watches for the purpose of diving and actually using them for that purpose. Yeah. So it's a a nice treat. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about chatting with Matt about that sort of thing because he has been an experienced diver for a long time. He's used a whole pile of different dive watches and um, he actually has a good understanding of what is necessary for a dive watch. And I remember telling him, telling me some of the the ins and outs of things like um, colors. You know, the the reason that a lot of these dive watches have these horrible color designs and whatnot um, is to make them more legible at, at depth, because uh, certain colors become very very muted as you go down in depth. So yeah, there's some great information in there, and uh, if you're if you're at all interested in diving and want to listen to uh, a couple of people talk enthusiastically about them and watches, then I recommend uh, listening to those guys because they do actually know what they're talking about. Sounds like you have something against the color orange. I, I'm i not a fan of orange. Uh, it makes me twitch when I see it in cars. I makes me twitch even more when I see it in watches. But I understand it's a, it has a uh, practical purpose. Uh, even in high-vis jackets, uh, you know, high-vis motorcycle jackets, I I'm not a big fan of the orange. I prefer the yellow over over that orange. And how about gold? <laughs> yes, gold I'm a fan of, although I'm not I'm not sure that I'm a fan of the gold that, that you're thinking of right now because we were, uh, again, we were talking about that really inexpensive Casio digital watch and Casio's released a slightly more expensive digital watch. Just a bit. Yeah, solid gold Casio G-Shock. Uh, this is uh, for one of their, their anniversaries and uh, it, We'll, we'll set you back a little bit more than a, a traditional plastic G-Shack will, will cost you. Absolutely. Uh, I have to say the presentation of it's impressive over on uh, Watches by SJX. Uh, they do an unboxing of one of the very few that was uh, uh, sent to the um, market outside of Japan because the vast majority of them went to uh, to Japan. And uh, it's actually quite an impressive presentation that they've got for this uh, this watch, but it's uh, a little bit on the hideous side, I must say. I would just think of the tea you can make in that, that teapot it comes <laughs> in. You know, for $70,000, I'm pretty sure that I can find a nice teapot and one that doesn't have a, a really ugly watch attached to it. Well, a somewhat more attainable range from G-Shock. They've also teased a, a laser-etched take on their, their G-Shock for about a tenth of the price. It's actually not yet uh, available. It's quite a neat neat take. I actually prefer the the aesthetic of their their geometric version that they teased this week than the the camouflage version uh, that they teased uh, a little while back. Yeah, this design is interesting. Uh, they've used a laser to engrave this geometric pattern on not only the dial but also the case itself by the looks of it. Uh, so it, it is a it is a an interesting look. It um, looks like something that maybe uh, should have been worn in Tron, but. Um, you know, so I think this is probably going to have a, a limited appeal to people. But I am really curious to see one of these in person, just because I want to see what the texture looks like on um, and you know on the watch in person. Uh, I'm also not 100 percent sure with the 
the design that they've engraved on the uh the outside of the case how textural it is or whether that's um you know relatively smooth it's it's a bit difficult to tell from the uh, the photograph that i can see here but the dial itself actually has some dimensionality to it so i'd be curious to see this and uh, see it in person to see what it looks like yeah if it's anything like the laser etched dials on let's see it's a rolex day date uh, then there's going to be some difference between the the different levels and uh, it's, it's actually quite neat the way that catches the the light and the way it looks in in different lighting and i hear your laser is finally in in transit so what did you settle on for a laser engraver yeah i was able to finally pick up a laser engraver i've been doing some uh digging for quite a while now and uh laser engravers have dropped in price a lot in the last six months and i i suspect a lot of that has to do with the uh the current uh pandemic that's going around i think that there was uh uh, a little bit of a, a depression in sales in um, fiber lasers coming out of China. I, I suspect that a lot of people weren't uh, weren't buying them, so the uh, prices dropped dramatically between November and uh, and now. Uh, so I ended up going with a hundred watt fiber laser, and it should be coming. Well, it's somewhere. It's in transit somewhere right now. DHL doesn't know exactly where it is, which kind of terrifies me. Uh, but it should be uh, should be here in the next week or so, and I, I'm really looking forward to playing around with this thing. Its primary use is going to be engraving the print plates for my pad printer. But on top of that, uh, one of the advantages of having a fiber laser is that I can actually engrave the metals that I work in as well. So regardless of whether I'm talking about the silver or uh, stainless steel or gold or whatever it is, I can actually engrave straight into it and get some depth and texture out of it, which is really nice. So I, I'm really looking forward to having that. I was originally looking at one of the lower powered ones because for the print plates that I use, um, you don't really need a 100 watt fiber laser for those. You can get away with a 25 or even a 30 watt laser without too much of a problem. Um, but the 100 watt lasers are actually a pretty reasonable price these days. And so I thought, yeah, let's go for, for something a little bit more powerful. Then I can also use it for cutting out metal as well. So uh, this, with a little bit of time and patience, I can actually cut through sheet metal and uh, also do some deep engraving. So we'll see what uh, what it looks like when I get it in, in terms of the results and and experiment a little bit to see what I decide to uh, to do with it. Now, given it can do deep engraving, do you know if the software that it comes packaged with can handle any sort of laser ablation or, or metal forming? With the newer versions of the control boards that they come with, they actually have full 3D capabilities. And uh, so they can control the laser height as well. The way that these work, um, a lot of people are familiar with a, or they've seen a CO2 laser. And you'll see sort of a carriage that runs around, uh, and it's something like a 3D printer would, where this carriage runs around and, and it sort of slowly goes around the part. And does the you know engraves the wood or or leather or whatever it is underneath it um, using a using a CO two laser. With the fiber lasers, they don't actually move the entire head like that. Instead, they use a little mirror using little galvanic motors that twitch it back and forth, and basically very quickly move the laser beam around. And part of the reason for that is because these are these fiber lasers are so much more powerful than the CO2 ones. Trying to move that carriage around at a speed fast enough to be able to, uh, you know, to be able to, to engrave and cut without actually burning through or melting the material that you're working on, you'd need to move that carriage head just way too fast. So instead, they use this little this little mirror to basically focus it around. Uh, so in the machine that I've got that height to the z height that you've got that's being controlled manually so what you do is you you put your piece down and you actually focus the laser on the correct height that you want to be working on and that allows you to then sort of engrave within a very small range so that z height that you can you can work in i'm not sure exactly what it's what the the full focus range is it depends on the on the lens that you've got on there but it's going to be let's say a millimeter of of travel so if you're too high, you're not actually focused properly and you won't be able to, to engrave appropriately. If you're too low, then again, you're not going to be able to actually cut anything 
because the laser's out of focus at that point. It's sort of like when you're when you were a kid and you were using a magnifying glass to try and starting a fire. If you're if you don't have that that distance quite right, then you don't get the the intense light that you need to to light something on fire. With the newer versions, along with having control over the galvanic motors and controlling that mirror, they also have uh, a stepper motor on the Z height, so you can move the the whole mirror assembly up and down, which allows you to change the plane of focus that the laser's working in. And that allows you to do more three-dimensional work and and actually sculpt with it as opposed to just doing a sort of a flat piece. Now, there's still, even with the one that I've got, there's still an ability to do sort of some three-dimensional stuff. And in terms of, you know, doing laser ablation, that's that's all that laser engraving is. You're just, you're just um, vaporizing the material uh, underneath it. So um, I can certainly do some work like that. I could do some some sculptural work like that if I wanted to. I'm just limited in terms of how deep that engraving actually goes. Uh, I suspect that with some experimentation, I could probably play around with doing it manually so I could manually change the the Z height between passes. Uh, also, I, I've built enough CNC machines before. It probably wouldn't be that difficult for me to uh, to put a, a stepper motor on the Z axis and then be able to control that as well. So uh, we'll see we'll see how useful that is and whether I I really feel a need for it. I suspect I probably won't need to do much of that. Uh, I mean the the most sort of three dimensional object that I would be working on in terms of wanting to engrave it is a pen, and even then I'm going along the length of the pen barrel, so the change in sort of focus height isn't dramatic in something like that. So I, I doubt that I would really need to worry too much about automating the uh, the Z height of it. But there'll be a lot of experimentation with it to see what I can get out of it and what, uh, you know, sort of what techniques work best and, and what I actually decide works uh, works for the designs that I want to do. So would it be feasible, for instance, to pull off something like your, your gothic overlay pen in full three dimensions using your, your laser? Do you think? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, the design itself was designed to be made about a millimeter deep. Yeah, it's it's certainly possible. I think it would need some some experimentation to figure out the sort of the the step, the levels of of sort of stepping to get a nice curve because the sides of of those designs actually have a curve to them it's not just a straight side or uh, um, you know like a straight plane that's there Uh, there's an actual curve there so that's the sort of thing that I can do easily with a CNC mill just because I can have it change the z height of the cutter as it goes along it's possible to do with the laser I just have to I would just have to design the g-code for it so that it's cutting the correct depth everywhere and adjusting for that. Sort of like when you're doing uh, slices on a 3D printer. It's the same kind of thing where you're basically slicing. I'd have to slice the design up in such a way that I could go down and get something that approximates that curve properly. Uh, I don't know that the software that it comes with would be able to handle that easily. So it might have to be something that I'd have to sort of custom, you know, create a custom G code for it to be able to actually do that. But uh, it's it's certainly possible. I just I don't know how feasible it would be. I think it's more likely that I would use it for something like my uh, Taj Mahal or my Jaipur pen, where I'm engraving down a certain distance, let's say half millimeter deep. And then I'm going in and filling it in with Niello afterwards. So I don't really care what the surface on the bottom of that cut looks like. Uh, I'm not worried about uh, having a particular curve to that surface. You know, it's it's basically just go down a certain distance and cut everything away. Uh, and so that's probably a better use of the laser than trying to cut something that's as sculptural as my overlays are, for instance. I guess you go pretty wild with the the designs on a, a pen using the laser. You could 
imagine just about anything in a, a pointer list style and, and fill all that in with yellow. You could have your your face put on the, the pen if you wanted to. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone would buy it. Well, yeah, I I am trying to actually <laughs> make some money doing this, John. I'm I'm not trying to scare my scare people away from my products. Uh, so I, I don't know that I would go go quite as far as as doing that. But you're right. I could do all sorts of things. One of the common things in the jewelry industry of the last few years with people with fiber lasers was doing things like uh, like fingerprints on rings. So you could take somebody's fingerprint and actually put it onto a, onto their wedding ring or put their partner's uh, fingerprint on their wedding ring. So that that sort of thing is pretty common and would be trivial for me to do in this case. I could put you know somebody's fingerprints onto the pen, for instance. Uh, in fact, right where they're holding the pen, I could put their fingerprints on it. So there's... You know, there's certainly options like that available to me. I don't know how much I'm going to play around with that stuff. Some of it's kind of gimmicky from a sort of a marketing point of view. Uh, But certainly this gives me a lot of options for taking those patterns and executing them in very, very high detail. I've wanted to do some designs based on some of the Islamic geometric art that's uh, that's done in a lot of mosques and there's some beautiful beautiful designs trying to execute them in wax with the the cnc mill was challenging there because of course if you if you screw up any of those details with a geometric pattern it's very very obvious that you've screwed up the detail and there were just too many inconsistencies with it Whereas with something like this laser, I can come along and I can get very, very precise patterns cut into the silver. And uh, also I'm cutting straight into the silver. I don't have to use an intermediate material like a wax and then cast it, right? And and then rely on the imprecision of the of the casting process and possible problems that are coming up from the casting process. So this gives me some options for doing more precise work that I've wanted to do over the years and just have not had a chance to. So I'm really curious to see where where I can go with that as well. Given how precise the dimensions of a, a watch case need to be, uh, this opens up a, a lot of potential for you too to start bringing your Niello work back over into the watch world. It's been a, a number of years since I've seen a, a brand new release in, in the watchmaking world uh, that contained any sort of Niello on the, the case itself. And this was a fairly popular technique as far as popularity goes, when, when watches were as rare as they were back in the day, but it's been, I'd say, probably centuries since, uh, or at least a century, since it was as common to see Niello in a watch case. Yeah, I think if you go back about 100 years, you can find certainly uh, pocket watches that had Niello work on the cases. Uh, certainly the um, uh, coming out of Russia, there was a lot of Niello work coming out of there. Uh, not just with their their pocket watches, but also cigarette cases and things like that, lighters. Yeah, you're right. You're probably looking at about 100 years since the last time somebody used Niello in a watch of any kind. So it would be interesting to try and use um, use the laser along with the watch case and then try and engrave some patterns in there and then bring the Niello work into it. Uh, it would be interesting to do some dial work like that just because, again, the dials are so small. Trying to do hand engraving or even casting methods to get the patterns that I want out of the Niello, it would be really challenging to try and do that. So this might give me some options in terms of uh, making patterns available in Niello that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise, or it would be very, very challenging otherwise on the scale that I would need to for a watch. So there's certainly a lot of possibilities that are open to me with this, and I'm I'm really curious. Actually, I'm really kind of curious to see how Niello engraves with the uh, the laser engraver hmm. and see what sort of textures come out of it what colors come out of it uh, because you can change the color of the metals to some degree uh with uh with a laser so i'm i'm really curious to try putting a piece of niello underneath the laser and see what happens with it that might open up some opportunities which i just don't have right now and uh yeah it's I, I love the idea of this, of this new technology. Again, as we talked about last last episode with these force multipliers, this this opens up so many options that I just do not have available to me right now. And again, it's a nice thing that I can set up a part, even if it takes an hour to laser engrave something. I can set the part up. I can walk away. 
and I can do something else while it's doing that. And that's that's huge for me. I, I need to do so much work by hand that anytime I've got an option to do something that's automated like this, and it turns out that it's new and interesting and looks really good, then I'm I'm all about that. I, I love that sort of thing. Laser etching yellow sounds like a, another paper in the making. Yeah, we'll see. I, I'm not uh, not too sure what's uh, uh, where that would go. Unfortunately, and when it comes to papers in yellow, unfortunately, the Santa Fe Symposium was was postponed this year. It was supposed to be coming up in May. Uh, as I mentioned, we're uh, going through our COVID-19 pandemic crisis right now. And of course, all these events are being canceled. And uh, that's one of the ones that so far has been, um, they, they've canceled it at the time that it was, and they're hoping to reschedule it for later this year. So we'll see. I'm not sure, um, not sure how many conferences are actually going to happen in 2020. I think it's going to be pretty lean for that this year. The, the future looks like it might be lean for four young men over in Germany. This final piece of follow-up, kicking it all the way back to episode 17 of Off Hours, we mentioned a gold coin made by the Canadian Mint, uh, which at the time it was produced was worth, it said to be worth about a million dollars, and today is worth closer to about four million dollars Canadian with the, the current price of gold. Uh, but this particular gold coin was on display at a museum in Germany back in 2017, and uh, it was stolen. And there are, are now uh, four men uh, on trial for the, the theft of that gold coin. So we'll, we'll see how, how that all, all plays out. Uh, I was amused to see the, the story about this and the fact that they were actually caught uh, they've still never found the the coin itself. Uh, at this point, I I have to assume that it was melted down. I do find it amusing that they ran off with it in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> Not exactly the uh, the mode of transportation for a, a classic heist movie, but a wheelbarrow was the most appropriate way of moving a hundred kilogram coin. And uh, so I, I'm amused by that. None of them have admitted to it or admitted to any of the details. Um, but they have confiscated, I think they said 70 different houses that were purchased with the proceeds of this, uh, of this heist or what they, they suspect are from the proceeds of this heist. I'm surprised that they caught these guys, although I suspect it's probably because they were living well beyond their means. And uh, hmm. that's what sort of turned the authorities onto them. I could see Guy Ritchie making a, a fun film uh, about this particular story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not quite as compelling as having a bunch of mini Coopers driving around with, uh, with a bunch of gold in the back of it, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure uh, your your old Mini Cooper would have made much quicker work of getting away with this thing than a, a wheelbarrow would have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll also post a, a great video that, um, uh, speaking of, of the Santa Fe Symposium, Frank Cooper, who's been a, a speaker a number of times at the uh, Santa Fe Symposium and somebody I met through that, he, uh, he actually posted a video to Twitter and tagged me on it with the uh, with the marketing video that the... Canadian Mint actually made about the manufacturing of this uh, gold coin. Uh, so we'll put that in the show notes as well. It's it's sort of an amusing look at the uh, the process of how this uh, this goes. And I say amusing mostly because the the tone of the of the video is very un-Canadian, but it's uh, definitely an interesting video to see how they made this coin. There's certainly a, a proud bunch in in the film for sure. And the video itself is also, it comes across quite dated now, so it gives you some idea of when the, the coin was actually produced. If it was melted down, it is a sad, sad state of affairs, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate that all, all the hard work that you see going on there in that film to, to bring this coin into being, uh, just to see that all literally melted away, uh, it's, it's kind of sad to think about. There wasn't only one coin made, though. That's uh, something that uh, that that often gets lost in a lot of these stories. I think they made ten of them. I want to say for the collector market. So there there are a bunch of them out there. There's somebody somebody out there has one of these things sitting as a coffee table or something, or or sitting in a you know in their den or something like that on a on a table on the side. So yeah, there's uh, there's a, a couple more of these out there in the world. So not all of that uh, that hard work was uh, was put to waste. Be one serious coffee table. <laughs> it's not not your uh, run of the mill IKEA coffee table, that's for sure. No, no, it, it certainly isn't. No. 
when you see the the amount of work and effort that went into to crafting just one of these, though, it is still sad to think that that all that that time and that, sure. that effort was was lost, or even just getting the the gold to that level of purity, even to melt that that down and spend it on a bunch of houses. Yeah, that is one thing that the Canadian mint is known for is the refining techniques. They're one of the few mints, or one of the few refiners, I should say, in the world that actually does five nines purity gold. So. That's not uh, not very common. Most people only do four nines purity. Uh, the royal the royal mint in the UK just released a five kilogram gold coin, and I don't think it's the same level of purity as this one is. Uh, I think it's only four nines purity. So, yeah, it is impressive that they were able to get such a large piece of gold that uh, that pure. That's uh, quite impressive. I was surprised to learn that they actually don't do their own refining in the UK either. I was, was not aware of that previously. No, I, from what I understand, they actually buy their coin blanks, their precious metal coin blanks from a company, I believe in Spain, uh, that does all their uh, their coin blanks. So yeah, they don't actually do their own um, their own refining and, and coining there in terms of making the coin blanks. Uh, I believe they do do some of the refining, but I think they send it out um, for final final refining and uh, then get the uh the goods back from uh from this other company and uh have them turned into coin blanks of the process whereas that's something in here in canada the canadian mint actually does all of that uh, all at once and that's one of the things that they've actually done quite well at business wise is making collector's coins like this for other mints in other parts of the world uh, so they if you do the tour here in ottawa of the royal canadian mint uh, they'll actually show you some of the uh, coins that they've made for other countries as well. So I really shouldn't take it for granted that we have uh, such esteemed refining going on right here in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sadly, it's not open to the public. I can't send my metal off to uh, to the Royal Canadian Mint for refining, which is unfortunate. It would be nice to have them uh, have them deal with it since uh, I know there have been problems in the past with some of the refiners in North America. Uh, large amounts of gold going uh, going missing when it's being refined. So it'd be nice to deal with somebody that was a little more reputable, but unfortunately they don't do it. Hmm. Yeah, there was a, a paper published on that through the, the Santa Fe Symposium, if I recall correctly. So we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, that that's absolutely terrifying. If you're in the jewelry industry and, you, and you're uh, having precious metals refined, that's that paper is worth reading. Um, it, was, it was shocking, the, the percentage of material that actually was going going missing as part of the refining process. Well, you sure picked an opportune time to move your studio out of your house. Uh, I tell you, when everybody else is is trying to work from home, I'm trying to work away from home uh, for the first time in more than a decade. It's uh, it's a little bit crazy. You're just kind of moving from, from one bubble to another. It's actually worked out pretty well for me. I, a lot of people are obviously being forced to self-isolate and either not work at all or work from home. Uh, for those of us, those of you who can work from home, obviously that that's an ideal situation. And uh, in my case, I'm fortunate because I, even though I'm relatively secluded here, it's just my wife and I and the cat here. So you know that that's pretty easy to avoid people, and we live out in the country, so. It's not as if we have a large number of people just stopping by or in the area even. Uh, so it's easy to stay isolated out here. And then the studio itself, it's even though it's right inside of Ottawa and it's on one of the busiest streets in Ottawa, uh, we don't really have a lot of people coming and going out of the studio. In fact, uh, next week it looks like it's just going to be me in 8,300 square feet of shop space. So even though I am uh, I am leaving the house and you know technically not supposed to be sort of going out and going to work, in my case, it's not really a big deal just because there isn't anybody else there. Uh, so, yeah, it's worked out pretty well for me, and uh, it's uh, it's amazing. As I said, the the street that, that we're on, Carling Avenue in Ottawa, is, is one of the busiest streets in, in the city, and it's incredible just how little traffic there's been on that street over the last, um, the last week or so as uh, people stop going to work and stop commuting. Yeah, COVID-19 is certainly taking its toll on, on the economy and just people's lifestyles in, in general mm-hmm. in uh, quite a short span of time here in North America and all around the world, of course. It's just, uh, it's taken a little while for things to ramp up here as they have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and obviously for a lot of people, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to bring their work home. I assume in your case, you're not bringing work home with you. 
to uh, work yeah. on watches while you're uh, while they uh, they shut down the store. So yeah, that's you know it's tough for a lot of people. And uh, whether you you know you're a school teacher, whether you're you know working in retail or whatever, it's it's tough to bring that kind of work home. So yeah, I feel for a lot of people who are in that situation. And uh, I'm as I said, I'm pretty fortunate. I've uh, I've spent the last twenty years working towards being a an artist hermit, and uh, it's uh, it's actually worked out pretty well in my case. I've uh, you know I've I've been training for this for decades, and and I'm uh, I'm ready for the challenge. Funny enough, I am absolutely one hundred percent would self identify as an introvert, and would probably clinically identify as an introvert. But I actually find uh, the current self-quarantining situation, I'm not getting enough uh, introversion, <laughs> introspection time uh, because uh, we've got a house full of people and, and little ones to take care of. So I'm usually pretty drained by the, the end of the day. That said, I, I am grateful uh, for the, the extra time that uh, I've got with, with the kids and certainly have been playing a lot of Lego <laughs> these past couple of days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's um it's funny how for a lot of people this um this is actually ending up being spending a lot more time with their family than they normally want to or uh or do on a regular basis. So it's uh yeah, there there's certainly a couple of people I've talked to who are are ready for this to be over just because they uh they don't need to spend more time with their family than they already are. But uh I we'll see how long this goes on for. Uh, obviously it's this can't go on forever. Our society is not really designed to uh to be this isolated like this. So I'm curious to see how long we go before we can actually uh, sort of go back to more business as usual. And I'm also curious to see just how much changes after we go back to sort of quote unquote normal life. Uh, I suspect that we're going to see a lot of things like uh, shaking people's hands and whatnot are, is actually going to decrease in popularity just because of, uh, of how conscious people are right now of, uh, of transmission of disease, and I think that we're going to see see a lot of that um, that change, and hopefully next year maybe things like the flu will actually decrease in terms of its uh, transmission rate, just because people are more aware of it. Hmm. That's a, a good point. I hadn't really thought about the fact that uh, the, the same precautions taken to avoid transmitting COVID nineteen would actually also prevent the transmission of, of the flu as well. Yeah, yeah, the flu, the cold, a lot of uh, a lot of things that people get hit by seasonally. Uh, a lot of that gets um, gets reduced dramatically if you uh, wash your hands, don't touch your face, don't touch other people. It makes a big difference. So we'll see. Uh, I just wish people would stop hoarding things at home. It's uh, a little bit frustrating going into the grocery store and not being able to to find things that shouldn't be uh, difficult to find at this time of year. Just because people are freaked out and they're uh, they're hoarding things, so if you're out there and you're hoarding things, stop it, please. We're uh, the rest of us are are trying to buy bananas, and I just I just want to buy <laughs> I just want to buy some bananas, John. That's all I want to do. Well, you're certainly doing yourself no favors with the the decorations around the shop there. Then so it's just ta- taunting yourself. I know we have a bit of a banana theme at the at the studio, and and I it's tough to get away from bananas, so I keep thinking about eating bananas and. And I can't buy bananas because there aren't any bananas in the in the stores. And now you're just going to go bananas. That's right. Yeah, we've been making a point of at least getting out outside once a day and going out for hiking the forest or mm-hmm. maybe going to hunt down a, a geocache or, or what have you. Which um, saying that out loud, I actually question the, the sanity <laughs> of uh, pulling up a geocache. Having no idea who else has, has touched it. Yeah. Uh, but we'll just make sure we we sanitize our, our hands uh, thoroughly afterwards with with hand sanitizer. Yeah. Provided. Uh, anyone can still buy some. I was going to say every time I, every time I hear rumors of hand sanitizer at a store, they, they get swamped with uh, with people. So I don't know how much of it that's out there. Well, I've heard a lot of distilleries are, are ramping up to start producing hand sanitizer, which is a surprising turn of events. But uh, hey, desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah, I'm I'm a little surprised that they have the capacity. You would think that with all these people spending a lot of time at home with their spouses, they would need to sell the alcohol. Just to keep people from uh, from going insane, so I'm, I'm a little surprised they have the capacity to do uh, to do more hand sanitizer. Who knows how big the the reserves are? That's true. That's true. Speaking of people who've been um, sort of spending a lot of time at the bench doing crazy things like building watches, there, there's a couple of interesting watches that you brought up this uh, that have shown up uh, sort of on our radar in the last few weeks. Yeah, so a couple more pieces that have, have popped up on on watches by SJX. 
two watches made by two young watchmakers, both featuring uh, a spherical complication of sorts, or, or semi-spherical to be more precise, uh, but for all intents and purposes, a spherical on the face of the watch. And uh, both of them also basing it on fairly popular movements, albeit very different, very popular movements. The first one that, that caught my eye was uh, one made by a young Japanese watchmaker, Norifumi Seiki, and uh, he has crafted a, a pocket watch with a spherical moon phase display, and the majority of the moving components inside he is taken from uh, an ETA or Valju 7750, uh, but he's not stopped there in, in terms of sourcing his components. He's also lifted some some parts from uh, a Pizza caliber in order to, to drop the beat rate of the, the watch down to a, a lower level. And uh, he's got all this driving a, a three-dimensional moon phase display as well as a calendar display. And uh, he has essentially uh, crafted just about all of the, the remaining components uh, up around these uh, parts that he's lifted from these other calibers uh, entirely by hand. Yeah, this is an interesting take on how to how to make a custom watch. It's a bit of a Franken watch, as you mentioned. He's he's taken a bunch of components out of out of a few different movements and then made new main plates for himself to uh, support all of those um, those components. So that, that's certainly a great way to prototype if you've got a movement which has the the parts that you want. And then the rest of the parts, like the dial, uh, he's um, he's made himself, as well as the case and the um, and the moon phase sphere that he's got there, the hands, that sort of thing. Um, and interestingly, because he didn't have access to things like a rose engine, uh, but he wanted an engine turned sort of dial look, uh, he's actually gone off and created a, a fairly textural silver dial using a lathe. And uh, I like the I like the fact that he's gone off and done this. It's not as refined a look as you get out of an engine turn dial, uh, but he's using similar techniques. Uh, he's um, he's then uh, bleaching the dial afterwards because it is a silver dial. Uh, so I, I like that he's wanted a certain look. He couldn't get it using traditional methods, and so he's gone out and and figured out another way of doing it. Uh, so that's uh, that's quite quite nice to see. So as our resident expert on, on Gioche, what are, are some critiques that, that you would have of this particular approach, or, or rather, how would you contrast this with the sort of result that you would get out of actually using a rose engine in, in lieu of trying to do it on the lathe the way that he has done? Yeah, there's a few different things that are that really stand out with this versus an engine turn dial. The first is that he's chosen to create uh, cuts that are quite deep. And typically, you're not going to cut this deep with a, a rose engine or a straight line engine. So that that's the first thing. And especially when you look at sort of the quote-unquote clou de Paris sort of style pyramids that are behind the, um, looks like the second and hour hands uh, that are there. Though that sort of depth that you would just never do out of a, um, you know, out of a, out of a straight line engine. Uh, those look like they're probably close to a half millimeter deep, maybe even more. So the, you certainly wouldn't do cuts that are that deep. Even the cuts that are uh, sort of the rose engine like work that's there, you wouldn't cut that deep with a with a when you're doing guilloché work typically. Uh, so that's the first the first difference. The other difference is that when it comes to the circular patterns, you can tell that they're actually circles. They're concentric circles that are there, and the sort of faux guilloché that he's getting, that that look that he's getting, is because of the overlapping circular patterns. So he's taking concentric circles and then sort of overlapping them. And uh, I think he's got a couple of different points that the circles originate from. It sort of mimics a barleycorn pattern. And, and to the, you know, into the untrained eye it's going to look a lot like a barleycorn pattern they wouldn't necessarily know the difference between them if you look at it you can see that it's it's clearly not designed that way uh, but it's still a great look i think that the uh, the look is unique uh, i like the fact that it's so textural that there's so much you know so much depth with the with this dial between the sphere between the deep sort of pyramids that are there 
uh, you do get quite a bit of texture there, and and that's that's nice to see on a dial, which you don't normally get to see. Yeah, and this is this is not a critique in any way, but just a, a thought or, or a comment. And that is, I, I think the the one area where it most falls apart. I think he he could have hidden that uh, just by by moving the I believe it's the minute hand that's in the center there. If he had, had moved that up, perhaps eight millimeters or or so, uh, up to where the pattern gets stretched out mm-hmm. and, and popped a hole in the dial there that would have uh, i think hidden the fact that it's not done on a, a rose engine a little bit better uh, but as you mentioned that the cuts are also very deep and to the trained eye uh, you're very quickly going to see that it is not a, a guilloche pattern but rather the, the concentric circles as you mentioned i was actually surprised you you brought up the the clue perry pattern uh, as the the first point to to talk about i, I thought it would have been the, the more barley corn style that, that you would have, would have picked on first, but uh, I hadn't even thought about the, the depth of the cut uh, as being a, a, a key point uh, of differentiation between this particular approach and, and that of traditional guilloche work. When I saw this for the first time, it was on my phone, I think. Uh, I think it came across my, my Twitter feed. And so it was just a, a photo that was on my phone. And if he hadn't done the Clou de Paris pattern behind the two sub dials i probably wouldn't have even stopped on this photo because at a small scale the rest of the pattern just looks like you know maybe sort of poorly executed barley corn and i say poorly executed because the size of the uh sort of the barley corn itself changes too much uh, along a certain diameter Typically, when you see barley corn on a on a that's done on a rose engine, all of the corn is the same size in that row as it goes around, sort of at that diameter. And you know, this basically just you know from a sort of a quick glance just looked like oh okay somebody's doing something different with barley corn or they they haven't executed it properly. And you know, I was just going to quickly pass by this image. It was really the clue to Perry that that sort of caught my attention and said, "What the heck are this? Uh, you know, is going on here? This wasn't done with a, a straight line engine," and that's what sort of made me look at it a little bit deeper and 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 look at it closer. So, um, in some ways, it's it's good. It's it got my attention. Uh, in other ways, it got my attention for the wrong reasons. So, you know, I think this is a great example of somebody thinking outside of the box and and trying to use the tools that they have available to them. Obviously, this is something that could be refined quite a bit and turned into something, uh, something a little bit, uh, a little bit nicer in terms of the actual execution of it. Uh, but you know, and and as you say, little things like where that uh, that pattern is sort of stretched out in between the two sub dials, that sort of thing could be um, could be hidden a little bit better. Uh, but otherwise, it's uh, you know, it's uh, definitely remarkable considering what he had available to him in terms of tools and uh, getting a getting this sort of unique style for himself. And it's worth noting as well that, that Seiki is only 23 years old. He was mm-hmm. born in 1997, and he just recently graduated from the, the Masahiro Kino School of Watchmaking there in, in Japan. Yeah. Uh, so it's this is just the beginning uh, of things for him. And he's talked about the fact that he wants to sit down and refine this watch a little bit. He said, I think he was saying that the, the calendar movement is, the calendar portion of the movement is having some issues. And so he wants to refine that a little bit and and uh, make it work a little bit more reliably. So hopefully he uh, works on the design a little bit as well. And and what we see as a final design that he actually puts up for sale is uh, is perhaps a little bit more refined than uh, than what he's got here. And in, in a number of ways, not just in the in the dial design, but also in the uh, movement itself. And the other unusual bit of crossover in similarity between this piece and the the piece by. Stefan Ketelars, which we'll get to in a moment, is that both watchmakers chose to use heat-blued titanium in their pieces. Here, Seiki uses it for the the moon phase display, and Stefan Ketelars uses it for the the hands of of his timepiece, which is the the 3D Terra, which, rather than showing the moon in three dimensions, has a night and day display of our globe in, in three dimensions on his piece. It is nice to see some alternative materials being used. Uh, the colors that you get out of uh, heat feeding titanium is definitely different than what you're getting out of uh, heat bluing steel. So it is nice to see that. 
Uh, you can certainly get some some very different colors out of it other than just blue. Um, but that uh, that blue is a little bit different than what you're going to be able to get normally out of steel. So it is nice to see some alternative materials being used. Uh, also, you can, in, if you don't want to heat treat it, you can also use uh, electricity to uh, treat the titanium and get the colors. And that's a, a slightly more repeatable process if you want to get certain colors dialed in. Um, so there, there's certainly some options available to you there with titanium versus with steel. The first watchmaker I was aware of to, to use heat blued titanium was De Bethune. And uh, curiously, De Bethune is, is also the, the first watchmaker I was aware of to use any sort of 3D complication. They've also done a, a 3D moon display that uh, they're, they're quite well known for. So it kind of Kind of makes me wonder just uh, how much uh, these two fellows were inspired, if at all, mm-hmm. by De Bethune. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly a lot more three-dimensional work being done on dials these days, and and some interesting things being done with globes and moons and whatnot. So, uh, I think that that's uh, sort of like the brown dial phase that we had a couple of years ago, and everybody was doing sort of brown dials. I think this is this is sort of one of the trends right now is doing. Uh, doing interesting things with uh, moon phases and and uh, globes and whatnot. So um, I think 20 years from now, we'll look back and, and sort of see this sort of three or four or five year period or whatever with a lot of these watches. And, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see how, how long this actually lasts. I'm not sure, not sure that every, what everybody's doing is, is worth keeping, but certainly there's some, uh, some of these are, are interesting watches. A couple of years ago, I think uh, Group of Forty just dropped a, a new brown dialed watch. Today. Uh, don't tell me that. I was I was really hoping <laughs> that the brown dial phase is is over. I'm I'm not a big fan of the brown dial phase. Pardon me, a dark chocolate dial. Yeah, it, it doesn't. You no, know, dark chocolate is something you eat, not not something that you put on a dial. Uh, and if I, I recall correctly, uh, Dibatoon's first moon phase display in three dimensions was produced close coming up close to 20 years ago now hmm. so uh, that's certainly not a, a short-lived phase either well i was thinking more in terms of other people you know the, there's been a number of interesting sort of astronomical complications lately in terms of moon phases and stuff there that seems to be one of the trends right now and not just with uh, with globes and three-dimensional dials but uh, just astronomical complications seem to be particularly popular right now now this particular piece is nice. It's um it's using a six four nine seven movement, which we've discussed a number of times. That's uh, one of the movements that I started working on at uh, the BHI when I was over taking courses last year. Stefan has gone off and modified a six four nine seven in um in this case to uh, get the look that he wants. And one of the interesting things that he's done here, along with the globe that he's added to it, he's also moved the balance to the dial side of the watch which is uh again something that we've seen a couple of people do lately this is quite a leap forward from his his previous piece that was also based on the the unitas movement or eta technically so you're, it's going to be hard pressed to pick up a, a unitas 6497 or 6498 these days yeah. it's almost guaranteed it's going to be from uh either eta or you're going to get an asian one uh from siegel and the like the previous one he had done also featured the the 3D globe, but was not as heavily modified. Uh, if you were to, to take a look at it, it's just very clearly an ETA movement, 6497, uh, that has just been heavily finished. Uh, he's put some serious chamfers on the bridges, but has not really reworked the the bridges or the, the main plate in any significant manner otherwise. Uh, but in, in this case, his second go at creating a, a watch with his own name on it. Uh, he has taken the, the entire balance assembly and, and flipped it over to the, the front of the watch in a, an MBNF style. Yeah, and I like what he's done with the bridge uh, for the balance as well here. He's moved it from a cock to an actual bridge, and I, I do like what he's done here. It's uh, it's a nice look without being too extravagant or, or too... Um, sort of too outlandish. I like the um, the refined look of it and the shape of it. I think he's done a, a great job. Yeah, although he does, he has still left a regulator on there and presumably he's left it sort of at this, the, the default um, spring that's in there without, without making it uh, free sprung. So that would have been a nice update to it is getting rid of that regulator and, and um, making it a free sprung balance instead. 
Mm-hmm. I would definitely back that sentiment. Uh, it's always nice to to see a free sprung balance in a, a timepiece. But I, I can understand uh, for economy why he's chosen to to go this route. And it would be lovely to see him introduce a, a free sprung balance down the road. Uh, it sounds like uh, he's actually using the the balance stock as it is. I would have presumed he would have cut a, a new balance staff for it uh, to accommodate the new setup. But it seems uh, he was able to to retain everything exactly as it is. He's even used the pallet fork bridge uh, as it is from the 6497. And he's even uh, curiously retained the uh, chemically blued screws for that bridge on the dial side, which uh, I find actually stand in in unusual contrast to the all-white screws that are, are used on the actual time display area of the open work dial. Yeah, there's a few things like that that it would be nice to see changed. The um, the screws, I think, on the back and the movement side, it would be nice to see those uh, those done a little bit better. Either uh, leaving them silver like the dial side, or or bluing them uh, in a slightly nicer blue. Because I'm not really a big fan of the chemical dyeing that they do on those uh, those blued screws. And the, the stark contrast with the the screw slot not being blued as well. Yeah, that that's a big problem with it because they obviously dye them and then cut the the screw slot afterwards, and it's yeah, it's not the the best look. All that said, though, it is uh, quite the feat for an, another young watchmaker. He's not yet thirty years old, and uh, he's, he's produced this uh, largely uh, by himself. Of course, built off of a, a fairly standard movement, but in this particular case, uh, this is it's got to be up there one of the the most reworked. 6497s I've seen. There's maybe one or two other contenders for that that spot, but he's made some significant changes here to the, the caliber. And you know, for all the nits that I've picked about this, uh, honestly, what he's done with it, as you said, is is remarkable. And the fact is that he's selling these for 5,800 euros. You know, we've been talking about watches that are, some of them are ridiculously priced. And even when you think about something like that, um, that Omega uh, three, two, one that we talked about a few episodes ago at seventeen thousand dollars Canadian. You know, for fifty eight hundred euros for a watch like this, which has been reworked the way that it is, it's rather unique in terms of design and and style and whatnot. I would much rather give somebody like Stefan my my money for a watch like this than I would for something that's going to be produced in the thousands or tens of thousands eventually. Um, so yeah, this is, this is the sort of watch that I'm, I'm impressed with, especially the fact that he's able to release it for the price that he is. That's, uh, good, good on him for being able to, uh, to put this out into the world as it is. As an aside, I wish they'd show the backside of this. I haven't dug much deeper. Yeah. They just show the backside of the other one. Mildly curious, um, exactly what he's done there yeah. for engaging with the, the escape wheel. Never enough photos. Yeah. The, the value for the money here is, is remarkable and, uh, he, he hasn't, really cheapened out on, on anything at all. He even got the, the box sapphire there protecting mm-hmm. the dial side and, and giving you a, a great view in to the, the three-dimensionality of the dial as well. Uh, even just a, a couple of years ago, you would have been hard-pressed to, to find a, a timepiece in this range with a, a box sapphire on it because the the tooling required to, to cut a, a sapphire crystal in this manner and to get that degree of, of polish and clarity on it is... Not easy to come by. Yeah. And uh, I think it was probably Tudor or, or a similar brand that, that would have been the first to to bring it into this sort of price gamut with uh, their Black Bay watches. And when you compare this to something like a, a, a Tudor, uh, you're getting a mass-produced product on the one hand versus a, a product that has a, a lot of, of handiwork and, and originality poured into it. Now, on on that same note, though, You've got the backing of a, a giant brand for for customer service and and whatnot on the one side, whereas uh, you're going to be hard pressed to to make sure that you've you've got that kind of service going forward necessarily from a a small independent watchmaker. But uh, that is is a a risk that uh, many people feel is worth making given given the trade off in terms of of exactly what you're getting for the money. Oh, absolutely. You're you're right. You, you you're dealing with a small a small maker versus a, a large corporation. Uh, but at the same time, the fact this is based on a 6497 means that any halfway competent watchmaker is going to be able to service this watch and, and be able to do work on it. 
and even find parts for a lot of it. So uh, I, I think that at the end of the day, this is a pretty safe bet for um, for spending all your money on it. So I think you're going to be able to, you know, if somebody dropped this onto your uh, onto your bench and uh, told you that you needed to service it, I, I don't think you would have too much difficulty servicing it and even uh, getting a few replacement parts for it if that was necessary. Mm-hmm. That's a, a great point. Is that the majority of the components that would be most worn out over time and, and in need of replacements are going to be readily available to replace things like you know, your, your mainspring or you know, wear on the the pivots of the balance wheel or even say the, the pallet fork beginning to show signs of wear or the any of the gears in the gear train. So all of that is just stock. So that's a, a wise play here on, on Kettler's part as well. Yeah, and that's one of the things that that sort of led me to to working with a a relatively large uh, movement maker as well when it, when it came to my watches, just because I know that I'm not going to be able to service all the watches that I make over time, and I wanted to make sure that it was something that was common enough that any watchmaker could easily repair and service the watch, and that those parts were going to be available uh, in relatively large numbers going forward. So. Uh, even once I'm gone, hopefully there will be more than enough of these watches out there and there'll be more than enough information about these watches out there. Anybody, even in the future, should be able to take one of my watches based on the eternal movements and be able to easily service and repair them. And, and that's something that I certainly thought about when I was um, when I was going down that road. In the vein of gears uh, not wearing out uh, anytime soon, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, embedding a, a a gear in the gear train in uh, a block of concrete? Yeah, that's uh, there's been a couple of stories that have come across my radar recently. Um, one of them was uh, Arthur Ganson's machine, and uh, he's created this gear train that has such a significant gear reduction that the last gear is actually embedded into concrete. I don't know if he ever mentions how long he thinks it's going to take before the gear binds up because the last gear is unable to move. But it's it's going to be a significant amount of time because that last gear is going to revolve once every two trillion years. Uh, so one revolution in two trillion years. So it's going to be a while before this thing actually rotates to the point where it's it's uh, binding because of that concrete. Yeah, so this this particular movement is using worm gears for its reduction. But there was another one that came across our radar, which was a, a Google to one gear ratio. Yes, a Google is actually a real number. Yeah, so this is using a more traditional uh, gear and pinion arrangement that we're used to in sort of watches. So this looks like a really boring watch movement design um, more than anything else. This was interesting. I appreciated you passing this along to me because I'd actually just been talking about the the concept of a Google and a Googleplex with my my son who's in kindergarten earlier in the week, and uh, he was quite pleased to to, to see this. Uh, certainly more pleased than he was when uh, he asked me to to write out uh, a Googleplex, <laughs> uh, which I resorted to using a computer to do, and, and he quickly grew bored of watching the, the zeros scroll on by from the, the little script I, I had written to, to print it out. But uh, a, a Google is, is far easier to, to write out. That's just uh, 100 zeros you're, you're dealing with. Whereas uh, Googleplex, it's uh, a one with a, a Google zeros behind it. So it take quite a bit more time in that same way to actually see this the final gear in this gear train to make a, a full revolution uh, you would be waiting an awfully long time for this going uh, a gear reduction of one to a google is, uh, it's just a number so big my my mind can't wholly comprehend it yeah it, it's obviously something that nobody nobody living today is even if this runs at you know at a significant rate there's no one who is alive today who would see that thing rotate uh, even a meaningful amount. Uh, and if you do want to watch this, there's a, a video we'll post in the in the show notes, which uh, has this thing running for an hour. And so you can actually watch it running for an hour in real time. And you can see just how little these gears are moving. And I think it's only the first couple of gears that you see even moving at all over the course of that hour. So you can imagine how long it's going to take before there's any significant movement uh, past the first couple of rows. 
how do you, you plan to spend the, the next bit of time in self-isolation there in your absolutely palatial studio? Well, the, the last couple of days I've been working on some welding projects. Uh, I've never really done any welding. And so uh, now that I've got the space and the machines available to me to do some welding, I've been uh, doing some MIG welding. And uh, the impetus behind this was that we had a whole pile of steel that was taking up space in the shop that needed to have a home. And so the first project that I did was I turned a small part of that pile of steel into a storage rack for the rest of the pile of steel that's there. Uh, so that's uh, what I've been working on the last couple of days. I still have some some things to to do to finish that up and and get it uh, get it finished so that it'll hold all of our metal. Um, but it's uh, it's been interesting. This rack is certainly not going to win any beauty contests for beautiful welds. Some of them are absolutely hideous. But uh, it should hold together and should hold up the metal that we're going to actually keep on hand. So, so that's been the last few days in the studio. And then coming up next week, I've got to finish working on the bench top for my new watchmaker's bench. I've been sanding that down and I've just got to do the last sanding pass on it before it is ready to go into the CNC router and shape into uh, the shape that I want for the uh, the bench top. I'm doing some cutouts in it to... Uh, make it a little bit more comfortable to work at as a watchmaker's bench. You know, just a lot of a lot of little things. It's still we're still very much at that stage where we're sort of building things for the shop and modifying the shop itself to make it more usable. But every week it's uh, a lot more a lot more comfortable to work in and um and things are a little bit easier. Although the one thing that's still difficult is in a shop that size, it is so easy to lose tools. I am constantly walking back and forth trying to find where I stored things or, or where where a tool is and it's in a box in the back in the storage and I haven't had a chance to bring it out yet. So uh, I'm looking forward to finally having everything organized and and put away because it's uh, right now it's a disaster trying to find certain things. Well, turning that, that pile of steel you were stubbing your, your toe on into uh, a set of shells is a perfect example of turning the problem into the solution itself. So So well done on that. Uh, now it just sounds like you need to, to get even more tools in the shop, maybe. It says that one is none and 20 is one, perhaps? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. It's, it's never never enough tools, John. I, I've got all the tools that I need, but there's always there's always a new tool out there. Well, it's nice to hear you have the, the CNC setup finally running for on the wood shop side of things. Oh, it's not quite set up yet, John. We still have to do that. Uh, okay, sorry. I spoke too soon. Kidding me? We, we, we haven't had the time to actually set up the damn thing. We've got to... Uh, so... Once uh, once Rich gets back from holiday and he's out of his quarantine period, that's going to be one of the first things that we need to get set up, actually, is that uh, CNC router and get it uh, rebuilt. We're, uh, we're increasing its size a little bit so that it can handle slightly larger pieces of wood than it was set up previously in Rich's basement where he was size-constrained. So that's uh, that's actually going to be one of the first things we do before I can finish my bench top is get the CNC router up and running. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having that that up and running. There's a number of projects that we need to to run through there. Well, it'll be a definite force multiplier for you guys once you've got that up and running. Yeah. Yeah. The the CNC router has a has a huge impact on us in terms of being able to uh, do everything from making parts for furniture to making jigs. Uh, just being able to make a jig for something is, uh, is really nice. And also being able to make uh, patterns for my pantograph. The, the, the pantograph that I have can do a 20 to 1 reduction and the CNC mill that I have just doesn't have the work envelope to be able to do something large enough, even if I'm doing a watch dial or something like that. Uh, I can't do a 20 to 1 pattern uh, on my mill. So having that CNC router available to be able to do patterns for the uh, the pantograph is is nice to have there as well. So would you be seeing something like acrylic for your pantograph masters or stick with wood? I imagine wood's a little too soft and porous for that. No, the, the wood, wood will actually work. Something like an MDF would actually work just fine. I, I'm not using it for producing in such large numbers that I'm too worried about it, about the pattern wearing out. And if I was, then I can also impregnate the MDF with things like uh, like a resin or something like that, or even a CA glue to, to help uh, sort of make it a little bit harder and, and, and wearing a little bit better. Uh, things like acrylic, unfortunately, they're, they're not cheap. Um, a lot of those mm-hmm. those uh, plastics are really not um, not that cheap. So, 
you know, the something like an MDF, it's it's a fairly stable material. I don't have to worry about it changing dimensions due to humidity quite as much. Uh, and especially with a something like a 20 to 1 reduction, even if it was a 10 to 1 reduction, any small changes to MDF in terms of its dimensions from uh, from the environment, it's not enough that it's going to be too much of a problem. So yeah, something like that's probably going to be fine. Maybe even plywood if I needed to, if I wanted to do something quick and dirty and I didn't happen to have any MDF on hand or whatever. Uh, even something like plywood will actually work for this. And if it's something that I'm, I know that I'm actually going to need that often, then I'm probably going to look at an alternative to making it versus the pantograph. Uh, because at that point, I'm probably better off automating it on my mill or uh, maybe even using the laser. Uh, that's one of the things I've thought about when it comes to doing things like cutting out the moon phase window, for instance, in my dial. Uh, I'm going to experiment to see, it, does it make more sense to cut it out on the laser instead of on the pantograph? So there's things like that where once you get to a certain scale, the pantograph just just doesn't make a lot of sense, unfortunately. You really need to um, just figure out a a less manual way of doing it and uh, something that, that I can uh, I can set it and forget it. Well, the pantograph you have is among the largest I have ever encountered in my life, so I do hope you're able to still find some use for, for that behemoth. Oh, it's certainly usable, and uh, and I know that I know that it's going to get put to good use for a couple of other things. And it, I always laugh when you tell me that it's the largest pantograph you've seen because it's actually one of the smaller ones that Gorton made. And uh, compared to some of the ones that Deckel made, for instance, it's it's very small. And also, it it only does two dimensions. It doesn't do uh, three dimensional uh, pantograph work. So uh, there certainly are larger pantographs out there, but uh, yes, it's it's a, a fair bit bigger than the desktop ones that, that are often used for the watch world. Well, I'm just glad you're still alive after I helped you move it. So, <laughs> Yes, thank you for that. And in fact, uh, that's that's the next video that I'm working on. So for those of you who are curious about the process of moving all these big, heavy machines, that's, uh, that's a video that I'm, I'm currently editing for the uh, Low End Design channel. So stay tuned if you want to see what's involved in moving a whole lot of cast iron in minus 30 degree weather. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>